ready for what the Lord would want us to, to hear today, okay? So let's, let's just pray together. And uh, let me just prompt you with a couple thoughts here. Number one, I want to prompt you that we would just not allow Satan to have his way in our lives. Okay? Sometimes I think that we look at Satan as being a theory or a concept or something that really doesn't affect me that much. And I'm not talking about giving a lot of credit to him. I'm just simply saying we need to acknowledge spiritual warfare and be aware that there is a powerful force of Satan and his enemy against us. And so let's pray that God would keep us from uh, the attacks of Satan and keep us from the temptations of Satan and even from our own fleshly tendencies to be tempted. So let's just go to him in prayer right now and just take just a couple moments as, and pray through that, if you will, for yourself and even for others. Lord, as we prepare our hearts this morning to hear your word, we're very well aware, if we're paying attention at all to what your word teaches us, uh, that not only do we battle our own flesh, but we have a mortal enemy, your mortal enemy. And so, Lord, we would pray this morning that as each of us face our week day by day, that we would not allow ourselves to be encumbered by the power of the dark side, so to speak, the power of Satan and his evil works to come against us in our flesh that we might not hear you, we may not obey you, and we may not do the things that you've called us to do in this life. So Lord, as we prepare to hear you this morning through uh, your wonderful, marvelous word, uh, we thank you for the joy of lifting up praises to you in song, but now we would ask that you'd help us to see in our own selves the evil temptations that we have to follow our sinful patterns and our sinful inclinations. And Lord, may we just surrender all that to you even right now and just give to you uh, fresh and new this moment uh, our fleshly tendencies, our fleshly desires, and just surrender all of that that we may walk in newness of life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your spirit dwells in those who you have uh, saved and those of us who are born again, Lord, so we're never in doubt of who you are and what you are in us. But, Lord, often we just allow the temptations of our lives to overwhelm us and overtake us. And so we just ask you, Lord, to receive all of that and, and just take from us the things that we carry around in our flesh and our earthly minds. And uh, just give them to you, Lord, and ask that you'd open our hearts to hear you speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, we've started this some time ago in Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at Jesus' life and specifically now in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're studying through the foundational truths that the sermon teaches us, okay? Everything that a believer really needs to understand. Now, understand also that as Jesus is teaching this, he's really dealing with people who know nothing, at least that's our assumption here, of the multitude of people that were following him 
would know nothing about what it really means to be born again. And so, uh, like God would, he would want people to know what it truly means to be saved, to be born again. And so the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do just that, is to bring people to a place of really a foundational level. We've got to start there. And we often, those of us who've been saved for a lot of years, need to be reminded Uh, of these important truths. And so uh, this is where Jesus is starting. So let's stand together and read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. Verse 4 is what we're going to focus on today, but just in honor of the Lord, we'll stand for his word. So in verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain or went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Amen. You may be seated. Right now, as uh, hopefully you're preparing your minds to listen, that you'll take some notes. You can see on the back of the bulletin I've got some questions there just to help you follow along in the sermon today. Let's just remember, as Jesus sees the crowds of people coming, he knew that this was the time to teach them about the kingdom, as I was saying just a second ago, specifically those people who make up his kingdom. Who are, those, who are going to be the inhabitants? Who are the people who truly are going to be a part of heaven? The unfortunate part is the inhabitants of the kingdom of God are going to be far different from what the people who are in their earthly lives, their fleshly lives, are at the current moment of Jesus' teaching. They're on the mountain. In other words, the people as they're listening are going to hear this and they're going to say, this sounds very foreign to anything that I understand in this life. Because if you think with me just for a second, all these people would really know is a dictatorship by Rome, oppression politically, And in a lot of power, uh, law is what they would know. Very little about grace, personal ambition, bribery, extortion, all of the things that come with a world that's dominated by a uh, government like Rome was. Now, Rome believed in peace. They had a great belief in peace, but they were also a very dominant power. And so were the Jewish religious leaders. They were people who wanted power and wanted control. And so the people growing up under that in that kind of culture would think of the kingdom as being something of just what I mentioned here. So they were the, that's what they would know. So when Jesus began to teach about what his kingdom was really like and to be a part of his kingdom, you can imagine what kind of shock that would be. Far different from what the earthly kind of kingdom would be. You think about it with even in our culture today. Uh, it is very different from what we know in our lives. Very radically different. The religious leaders began to think Jesus was a fake because he was not setting himself up, as now I'm talking about in time, not at this moment of his delivery of this sermon, but in time they're going to think of him as being a fake because he's not come to establish himself as an earthly king and to take over Rome and to make all things right in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. And so they would seek one thing. That is, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's not the one that we want to put on the throne. He's not the one that's going to overpower uh, Caesar. And so they didn't want anything to do with him. Probably their thinking was something like, who wants to spend their lives as humble people? What kind of kingdom is that? Who would want to spend their time loving their enemies and submitting to the earthly authorities or putting themselves above anybody else? Everything of God's kingdom is the exact opposite. Of that, And that's what we really need to hear from this sermon. 
not just today's sermon. I'm talking about Jesus' sermon as he's teaching on the mountain here. Everything of the flesh is just the opposite of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And I think as God's people, we need to mark that carefully in our minds and in our spirits that we are to live a life that is very, very different from what the world would proclaim. Our world as we know it proclaims really basically one thing. You be proud and enjoy that pride. You make sure you're number one. You do everything that's possible to be on the top. The problem with that is if you've got a room full of people all trying to be on the top, you're going to have a lot of conflict, right? Because everybody's vying for the same position. I'm not talking about just in the corporate world. I'm talking about just with life. We've said many times before the reason why we get upset about things is because we are number one. And I don't like it that you come against my idea. Because I've got the best idea. I've got the best concept. I've got the best plan. And you think you got the best plan, that's going to put me in conflict with you. And so this whole idea of humility and what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom is far, far different. So again, it's important to understand that this sermon of Jesus is a declaration of his kingdom. He is saying to the multitude, listen... Yes, I am the king and I am come to proclaim my kingdom, but it's going to be vastly different from anything that you understand. And the, the connection between everything that Jesus wants the listeners to hear is about character. So write that word down, character. Jesus is identifying the character of the people who make up his kingdom. So in other words, the kingdom of God has to do with character. Very, very important that we understand that. Character is the part of every human being that displays its belief system from the heart. In other words, who you are in your heart is displayed through your character. And Jesus understands that. The Lord understands that. And that's why he is preaching what he's preaching. When the heart is full of sin, if we wanted to say that, in other words, the character on display is sinful. It's selfish. It is suppressing. In all the things that we talked about just a moment ago, it is full of lust for power and for control. If that's the character of the nature of sinful beings, then that's what's going to be put on display. But when the soul is rescued, when the soul is saved from the power of sin and the bondage of sin, then God is put on display. Amen? It's the power of the Spirit of God then who begins to be the outworking of the character of the individual. And I hope that you've seen that in your life. As there was a time in history that you saw your need for Christ, that you realized that there was a sinful nature in my heart, that God changed you and from that change your character began to change. Is that accurate? Now if that's not accurate, we need to question the salvation. And this is a biblical truth. So Jesus is attacking that innermost part of everyone who would be listening to him to say, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then you must understand the character traits of the people who make up my kingdom. That's the only way you're going to be a part of this. And so Jesus begins his message by describing those character traits. That's what we've seen in this first one that we talked about last week. And those, tra- those traits create blessedness or happiness or contentedness. And that's why Jesus starts out the way he does. Happy are those. Blessed are those. He's really saying, if you want to be happy, here's number one. You have to be humble. You've got to be humble. And that's God's will for every one of his people. 
that they will live in happiness. God wants us to be happy. Now, I don't want you to get lost as I use this word happy. We've kind of misunderstood happiness some. Happiness in itself can be just kind of a fleeting kind of thing. It does this number. So just understand when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about an inward contentedness, something that's not affected in everything or by everything that comes along in the course of of the day. God is looking for us to be contented. Basically, we could say at rest. Isn't it joyful when you think about as an adult? Well, as an adult, you think about this more than a child does, but what rest means to you today? You know, isn't it crazy how as children you couldn't wait to stay up all night? But as an adult, you're like, can we go to bed now? It changes a lot, doesn't it? But what the Lord is talking about here is he wants us to live in a state of rest, a rest spiritually so that we're not blown about by the things of this life and distracted and carried off by the temptations of of Satan. We could say peaceful or joyful. That's what the Lord wants for us. Now, who wouldn't want a God like that? Who wouldn't want to serve a God like that? You see how people so misunderstand who God is? Jesus, God come in the flesh, is saying to the multitudes, listen, I am a God who wants you to be happy. I want you to be content. I want your souls to be at rest from the temptations and the bondage that you've found yourself in. But isn't the flesh so wicked? It will resist the love of God and push him away. But not for everyone. That's why you're here today, right? You're here because you've listened to the Spirit of God. Hopefully that's what you've done. The Spirit of God has drawn you into his fellowship, into his Spirit himself, and he's opened up a new life for you through the joy of salvation. He doesn't want you to be overwhelmed by the sorrows of this life, the tragedies, the difficulties, the circumstances that cause you to be fearful. And that's why he says, one day there's coming a day where I will wipe away all tears from your eyes. Well, the beginning of that life is now. At that moment in the scripture, he's talking about the day when we're together with him in the eternal kingdom. But God really wants that for our hearts now, that we don't be overwhelmed, that we're not overwhelmed by the struggles of this life, leaving us at peace with him. Paul gives us a great example of this as he was a man who struggled greatly in this life with various temptations of the flesh. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians. And understand 2 Corinthians was written at a time in his life where uh, there was great challenge. In fact, there are other letters that we don't have uh, with us that were evidently lost that Paul is believed to have written. But in 2 Corinthians, he talks about himself and as God's people. He says in verse 8, chapter 4, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Listen to what he says. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, just like any other person out there, yes, we suffer the difficulties. We go through the problems and the pains and the pressures, but we're not overcome by those things. Why? Because we're a part of Christ. Because the Spirit of God lives in us. And because of Him, we have the ability to go on. We can get up on a Monday morning and say, I really don't want to go to work this morning, but because of Jesus and his saving my soul, I'll go and I'll go gladly. Even though the day may look like it's going to be horrible. 
So again, Jesus' declaration here is, listen carefully, he's talking about not what a man does, he's talking about who the man is. Who the man is. Who are we in our souls? In other words, happiness is not about the circumstances of our lives, but it's about the condition of the man's heart. And of course, understand I'm speaking generically here, ladies, man, woman, but whatever category you want there, which is reflected now in the character of that person. So often we get caught up in what we do. We find our identification in what we do in this life. Jesus is saying to the multitude, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. That's what's most critical. And the first character trait to define us is this poor in spirit. That's people who are humble. People who know they have nothing but Christ. Nothing in this life. Because they see what their sin has done to them and how it's caused opposition to the holy God. That's where it has to start. To be a part of God's kingdom must start with an awareness that I am an enemy of the almighty God in my flesh. And I recognize that. And in humility, I see him for who he is and I surrender myself to him. And so... We give up the governance of ourselves to God's governance. He becomes the one who is the God over us, where we are no longer rebellious to him, because in our flesh we are rebellious to him. Constantly we are rebellious to him in our flesh. We are troublemakers for God in our flesh. But when we're born again, we are on God's side. We're no longer those things, no longer creating problems for him. He has surrendered this person, the character of God's, people has surrendered the will, the intellect, the heart of the individual has been given over to the Lord and fully devoted and dedicated to God as the authority of everything in life. Beloved, can you say that about yourself? I pray that as we go through God's message, we'll hear the Spirit speaking to our own hearts, asking us questions and getting us to ask questions of ourselves. Is that that the person I am? Is this how I look to you, Lord? Is this what you see in my heart? Or do you see a heart full of joy of your spirit? Do you see a heart that's fully dedicated and devoted to you? And God says, listen, when a soul gives himself over to the power of God in all ways, they will be comforted. They'll be comforted. Not only happy, but they'll be comforted. Now, how beautiful is that? I mean, again, let's go back to our statement a second ago, our question. Who would not want a God like that? What person would say, oh, I don't want a God that wants to love me and give me contentedness and give me joy and give me peace and happiness. I'll just figure it out on my own. What fool would do that? Well, go look in the mirror, beloved, as I look in the mirror, because that's the nature of the sinful flesh. It desires to be God. And to make its own way. And I dare say even many of you this morning are struggling with giving up control to the Lord because the flesh is that powerful. It does not want to humble itself. does not want to submit to the God in all things, in all ways. But that's what the Lord says is required. And that's where we were last time. And so we just need to understand the message of Jesus is a message that would cause people to investigate their hearts, to challenge their own hearts, which will reveal the character of that person, a character that will determine the eternal destiny of that person.
So that's where the path is, and that's what path each of us are on as we come into this world. And so Jesus has come to change us and to make us what he wants us to be and to give us a life of joy. So let's look at the second character trait of God's people now. And Jesus says, these are those who mourn. Those who mourn. Now, first of all, let's be clear. Everybody mourns. Everybody has days where they are sad at some point. It's a common experience for every human being. There's not one of us who hasn't experienced some kind of mourning, whether you're a believer or not. Every non-believer has experienced mourning in this life. The distinction is between what we would call normal mourning or sorrows versus abnormal mourning or sorrows. Okay, so Mourning and sorrows are synonymous here in what I'm telling you. Normal sorrows would be just what it sounds like, the normal pains of life the things that come at us all the time, the abnormal sorrows or pains would be those things that are based upon our sinful desires or our sinful passions. So listen carefully as we go through some of these things because I think we need to discern between what's normal and what's not normal spiritually. Because we'll often get distracted and get confused by what's really normal sorrow and what's not. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand this. For example, when a person has some lustful desire that they can't fulfill, that becomes a very abnormal, sinful desire or sinful mourning. In other words, they'll get frustrated and sad or irritated, angry, whatever you want to say, because they can't satisfy this lustful passion. Okay? Now, there's lots of categories that fits into that. Let me just give you a couple. One would be like when the Hebrews were at Mount Sinai. When Moses was called by God to go up onto the mountain and to receive the Ten Commandments, you remember what happened? Their spirits, their fleshes, their flesh rather, was mourning the loss of their God. Because what they knew in Egypt was the gods of the Egyptians. They had forsaken the God of the Hebrews until he came to rescue them. They get out into the wilderness, and as soon as their leader, Moses, is gone on the mountain, what do they do? They turn back to their sinful passions, which was to worship idols. And so in the book of Exodus, verse 32, chapter 32, I'm not going to read all of this, but that's where you find this in verses 1 through 10. The, the very substance that I'm talking about here is that even Aaron, Moses' brother, gives into this and establishes a celebration over this golden calf that's erected. So you see the difference there? There was a, a, a mourning over the loss of what they believed was important to them. And so they created something that was very sinful out of that abnormal mourning. There's another story in 2 Samuel chapter 13 with Amnon and his sister Tamar. You remember, these were children of King David and Amnon. They were half-brother and sister by different uh, mothers. But Amnon so lustfully desired his sister Tamar that he couldn't stand his life. He couldn't live his life. He was in a real sexual passion for his sister. And the text tells us that he actually violated her. And then that's when his brother Absalom desired to kill him because of what they, he had done to their sister. So we see these kind of passions in that kind of way. But let's just ex make it a little bit more close to home for us, and that would be it's very possible to even mourn in an abnormal way over some earthly passion like wanting a certain object, like a house. 
or a car or clothing or maybe it is some kind of relationship. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's new friends, whatever it might be. It's that desire inwardly that's never satisfied to fulfill itself and so it just stays bent on that. Or maybe you're not in control of life and that sinful passion wants to be in control. Let's say you're at work and you're under the uh, leadership of a person that you don't want to be under. And so you passionately mourn and complain because you just want to be out from under all of that. And you seek some way to make that happen. Or even over your family. Or sometimes parents will have this obsession to be in control even over the children or over a spouse until they fulfill it in some kind of wrong way. So in other words, all we're talking about here is to be so focused on what you don't have is a very ungodly passion. That's abnormal mourning. So as you look at your life and you're saying, why is it that I want this thing or this issue or this topic or this subject so badly? We need to check ourselves and find out whether that's an abnormal thing, it's a sinful sadness, or whether it's really of the Lord. Another example of an abnormal sorrow would be like when a person has a legitimate sorrow, but they don't handle it in the right way. And we say, what are we talking about? Well, how about like the death of a loved one? Often, all of us who go through the loss of a loved one understand what it means to mourn the loss of that person, right? I mean, if we don't, then there's a problem on the other end. We'll have to talk about that later. But all of us understand what it means to lose somebody. Well, many times people would get so lost in their sorrow that they're no good in life anymore to the point where they may even take their own life. I've known people like that in the past. There have been people, there was a young girl at the local Christian school some years ago when our older kids were there who took her own life and all she left was the thought that her father, who had also killed himself many years prior to that, she was so lost by him being gone that she couldn't live her own life anymore. Do you see how that's an abnormal kind of a sorrow there? So it's an ungodly mourning when a person lives in a state of mourning over something that they cannot control or change instead of living by faith and trusting in the Lord, the God that they say that they serve. And then there's this legitimate sorrow that both believer and non-believer experience. We all experience that, like loneliness. I already mentioned some of this. We all experience what it means to be lonely. God made us to have companionship. So to mourn over being alone is not necessarily evil, but it can become evil if it's used to draw attention to ourselves, right? if the flesh steps in and begins to make it look at ourselves more so people recognize us. And people will do all kinds of weird things to identify themselves in the crowd. Or when a loved one is sick to the point where there is normal mourning or abnormal mourning that the person experiences at times. And God is very much concerned about all those things. There's no question about it. We identify with these things. In fact, he's the God of comfort and great healing. And what we were just talking about. So to say that God is not concerned about my sorrow in the things of this life just in a normal sense is not accurate. That's not true. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what he wants me to believe. So we get lost in our anguish over things to think that all of a sudden, well, God must just not care about me. But that's exactly what Jesus is teaching. 
He's saying just the opposite. Yes, God does care about you, but you need to understand what real mourning is all about. It's not this earthly kind of fleshly mourning. And so what Jesus is talking about is the kind of sorrow that is produced over the sinfulness of the heart. That's what Jesus is driving at. He's not so much talking about the sorrows that come about in this life. He's going deeper into the soul and he's saying, let's talk about the sorrow that you should have over your sin. The sorrow you should have over your sin. Being sorry that you are a sinner. Now understand, again, let's go backwards just for a minute. This is foundational. Jesus is building the support system for what the kingdom is made from. And every person who's going to be a part of the kingdom, first of all, must humble themselves, and then they have to recognize that they're a sinner. They have to accept that, believe that, and then mourn over that, be sad over that. So we could think of it this way. Jesus said, happy are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, these are the people who know they have nothing to offer God. We've covered that well. They are spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. That's character trait number one, and because you know that to be true, you start to believe it emotionally. In other words, people will say, oh, I know that I have this issue, and so now I'm going to start believing this emotionally and feeling it, and so they begin to mourn over their sin. Now both mind and body are affected, or the inner workings of the person are affected. There's a lot of people, in fact, who think that they're saved but they're really out of balance because they believe intellectually in their mind, but spiritually in their heart they don't really understand. They don't really accept what the Lord is doing. Or they're emotionally convinced. You know, we're emotional people. They're emotionally convinced, and they stay depressed all the time. They say, oh, woe is me. I'll never be able to make it. I'll never be good enough. They have a great emotional experience over their sin. That may have been some of you, where you felt the emotional pull on your heart and you acknowledge that. It could have been a time where you were in a church service and you felt the Spirit of God moving and you walked an aisle and you were so emotional over what you were experiencing in your, in your soul at that moment and even surrendered to Christ in an emotional way. But the difference is you later began to stop feeling that emotional pull because your mind wasn't also engaged in that change. And after the emotion was gone, everything stopped being so important anymore. Lots of people are like that. In fact, we are so emotional in what we do, we have a whole society out here that appeals to our emotions. Right? You need this. You should have this. Well, why do I need that? Oh, because you're going to feel so much better about this. And everything in the, uh, the advertising world in many ways is geared towards touching our emotions. And unfortunately, a lot of times spiritually, that's what happens to people. They come to Christ, understand the air quotes there, but it's all based off of emotion. And I'm not saying that emotion is bad. Don't hear that. Emotion is a very God-given uh, ability to us. In fact, the Lord says um, that, that uh, a merry heart does good like a medicine. Right? So it's good for us to be emotional in a lot of different ways, but what we don't want to be is so lopsided either intellectually or emotionally that we have a mind of understanding God, but our emotions are not engaged, or we have so much emotion that our mind is not engaged, and so we're out of balance. And that can happen with just anybody. 
So the point is, is that the intellect and the emotion must accept Jesus as Lord. And listen, when that happens, it means that the mind is believing and the emotions show it. You might say, well, I intellectually believe, Pastor, that Jesus is Lord and I accepted that, but I don't show a lot of emotion about it. Well, I'm not necessarily talking about coming up here, and it could be. For many of you, it might have been this way, but I'm not talking about just necessarily weeping outwardly about it, but there should be a sense of an emotional state inside of you that's mourning the fact that you are sinful. That has to be the case. If you just intellectually say, oh, yes, I'm a sinner, but you don't mourn over that sin, Jesus is saying you're missing the point. You've completely missed what it means to be truly born again. Yes, it's not talking about needing a whole box of tissues and whatever. That could have been the case, and I'm not minimizing that. Maybe that was your situation, and praise the Lord for that. As long as both the mind and the emotion were accepting the truth. Because if you do one without the other, you're going to get lost and you're not going to stay with the Lord because salvation is not going to be genuine. And that's why Jesus is saying what he's saying here. One commentator wrote this way. He says, entrance into his kingdom begins with an overwhelmingly helpless feeling of spiritual poverty. We've covered that. It begins with a sense of the bankruptcy of the soul. That's where it begins. As long as you live on this earth, you will never enter God's kingdom unless you have a sense of spiritual bankruptcy. And if you are a child of the kingdom, you'll never lose that sense. But in your flesh continually dwells no good thing. As long as we live, we have the same sense of spiritual poverty. If it wasn't there at the start, you're not a Christian. If it's not there now, it's questionable whether you are a Christian because it's a part of kingdom people. I have worked long enough with people to know spiritually that there are many times where people will make an intellectual decision. There are times where people will make an emotional decision. But that doesn't mean that they're truly a part of God's kingdom. That doesn't say that, oh good, you can put the rubber stamp on there now because you had this intellectual breakthrough. Or that you had this great emotional experience. When the two, though, are merged together where you go the aha moment, oh, I am a sinner who needs the saving work of Christ, and by the way, I feel so horrible over my sin, that's when the character of the person begins to change. And that's when true spiritual rebirth occurs. You leave one out, and you've missed the point. So if you think of Jesus' Beatitudes then as kind of a sequential list of, towards godliness, this is what he's saying. First, you've got to have an overwhelming sense of your spiritual poverty. You must see that. That you are spiritually destitute. You have to see yourself as a beggar who comes to the Lord as your only hope, crying out for mercy and for grace from the God who can save you. Secondly, that godly sorrow is going to cause you to mourn over your sin. You're going to look at your life and you're going to say, what a wicked sinner that I really am. I see the sin in my heart and I can't believe I'm so wicked. You say, well, I don't know that I like that too much, Pastor. I just kind of like to be jovial and happy all the time. Well, good. I hope you do. That's a great character trait to be around. But we're not talking about just living an everyday life. We're talking about our relationship with the Lord as far as it occurs with being in the kingdom. Let me give you some biblical support for this. Listen to David. You remember King David when he sinned over, uh, when he sinned with Bathsheba? 
Listen to his heart. In Psalm 51, verses 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. That's the word for sin. Notice this in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now listen. David is saying exactly what we were talking about. His mind is engaged in this, but don't think for a second his emotions aren't engaged in this because he knew the sin that he had committed. And he was very much in tune with what was happening. And that's why he says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, God. That's not an intellectual response. That is, Lord, help me in this. I see my sin before you. I recognize what I've done in your presence. Now wash me clean from this. And just to be clear, doing a word study, that Greek word there that we're talking about from Jesus' verse here about mourning is a word that's representing the strongest in the Greek language of words that would represent sorrow and sadness. So when this word is being used, they would have understood in their original language, Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not just talking about being remorseful. I'm not just talking about being upset. I'm talking about being deeply affected by the sin that's in your heart. That's what he's saying here. A deep agony. It's the same kind of agony that Jacob would have felt as he experienced the loss or first heard about the loss of his son, Joseph. And those of us who are parents can only imagine what that situation was like. As his brothers who had committed this great atrocity against their father and against their brother, hated their brother so badly that they would conjure up such a wicked story like this, even desiring to put him to death, but in out of their own guiltiness, they released him by God's divine providence that Joseph would go on into Egypt. God did all of that. But yet the wickedness of the brother's hearts and coming back to their father and saying, look, our brother died and was killed by wild animals. Let's read it in Genesis 37. Verse 31, they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, liars. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. And he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now notice this, verse 34. So Jacob did what? He tore his clothes. That was a sign of great mourning. And he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All that's symbolic of a Hebrew way of mourning greatly. And then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him. Boy, what a bunch of hypocrites. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. And so his father wept for him. If you can insert yourself into that situation for just a minute, you'll get an inkling of an idea of the mourning that Jesus is talking about we need to have over our sin. That's what he's saying. Like a parent, like Jacob, who would go through something like that, contrived by Satan's 
wicked plan through his brothers, but Jacob didn't know that. All he believed at the moment was, my son is gone, torn up by wild animals, and his heart was broken, just destroyed over this. And let's go to the disciples for just a minute and their situation after Jesus was crucified. Three years they had been taught by the Lord to believe that this was the God, the God come in the flesh only to be crucified on a criminal's cross. Imagine the earthly mindset, the fleshliness and the temptations that would be coming at these men. In fact, we know what happened, right? What they do? They went back to their occupations. They were terrified for what may happen to them. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9, we read, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and reported to those who had been with him, notice this, while they were mourning and weeping. Now listen, this mourning and weeping is not because Jesus has been resurrected. They're mourning and weeping because the king is gone. It's like, what are we going to do? What fools are we? Where is he gone? Why? You can just imagine the questions. In verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. It's that kind of mourning. Now please listen carefully because when God sees that kind of sorrow over sin, he forgives. He forgives. And praise his name for that. But it's not, Jesus is saying, it's not until you come to the place of that kind of mourning over the sinfulness of your soul that God's forgiveness begins to take effect. Because prior to that, everything is either intellectual or it's emotional. It's not both. It's one or the other. Many people have believed in their mind that God was, that Jesus was Lord, but their heart was really not changed. Many people have believed in their emotions, but their mind was not changed. And God says, when you mourn like that, it not only brings my forgiveness, but it will bring happiness to you because your life will change. Your character will change. Your nature is changed. And you will look to me for all things. In fact, when David saw his sin and mourned over it, look what happened in Psalm 32. Here's what he said. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, put yourself in the place of David, which is hard for us to do because we haven't committed adultery and we haven't murdered the man, the woman's husband. We haven't deceived the entire nation of people and used the military commander to fulfill all of your lustful passions. We haven't gone down that route. But David did. And David understood clearly that his sin was a wicked violation in the face of the holy God. And he rejoices, though, when he knows his sin is forgiven. How blessed is that man. Look at verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know what David was thinking, I believe? David was realizing that now and forever I will be with my God in eternity. My sins have been atoned for. They've been paid. Notice he says in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, here's the key, watch this, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
In other words, there's this time in a person's life where they will not acknowledge the sin and the body will consume that individual. Do you realize that's what the aging process is all about? I mean, we get older to prove to us that we are sinful, right? I mean, I don't talk about each other badly about that. Some of us look better than others when we get older, right? Not so much for others. But the whole aging process is about this issue of sinfulness. We only get older and die because of sin. David's saying here, listen, when I hold in the sin that was in my heart and I tried to hide it from the entire uh, Hebrew people, then my body began to waste away. It began to affect me in my physical body. And that happens to us, doesn't it? You've ever held on to something that you didn't want anybody else to know? Your stomach gets the rumbly tumblies. You start having headaches, right? Can't sleep at night. Can't focus, can't process things well. Because you know internally there's something wrong. You know that there's sin that's being hidden from yourself and from others, but not from God. But not from God. David said in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. There was conviction there. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you in verse 5. In my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And look how beautiful this is. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 6, Therefore now he wants to let everybody know. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, folks. There's only a short window of time in this life to get things right with the Lord. That's what he's saying. There's only a short window in this life to make sure that your sin is exposed not just to you, but to the Lord openly. And that time goes by very, very fast. Can you believe that next Sunday is December the 1st already? I mean, time just flies by, right? But notice what David says in verse 7. Skip to verse 7. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of deliverance. What David experienced is exactly what happens to every person who confesses and mourns over their sin. You may say, well, I again didn't have a sin like David. I can't really identify with him. Just understand this. If you're comparing yourself to a holy God without sin, how much sin do you think it's going to take in order to be banished by that holy God? Right? You get it? One? One sin? doesn't have to be major sin. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, my sins are not as bad as everybody else. Well, the problem is they're comparing themselves to the other people instead of to the Holy God. So this spiritual poverty and mourning over sin is used by God to create a new relationship. And that's what happened with David, and that's what's happened with everybody. The kind of mourning over sin is built upon acceptance of our sin and forgiveness by God. In other words, let's ask the question, do you want to be happy? Of course you do. I do. We spend our entire existence trying to find happiness. We work hard in our lives and we look for that day of retirement so we can what? Finally be, say it, happy, right? Because there is no happiness until you retire, evidently. I mean, 
that's evidently what the book says, right? Somebody's book. That's not what God's book says. God's book says the earlier and the quicker you come to a place where you recognize your sin, that's where happiness will begin because I will forgive you if you confess it to me. And by the way, I'm not saying there's something wrong with retirement, okay? Just so we understand. If we want to be happy, we're going to follow what Jesus has said. True happiness comes, listen, when we acknowledge our sins, not just intellectually, but we mourn over them in our hearts. And that's when we experience God's forgiveness. One commentator says this, until sin is forgiven, happiness is locked out. That's a good picture. Until sin is forgiven, you're not going to be happy. That's the bottom line. You say, well, I'm pretty happy and I don't really need God. You don't understand what real happiness is. That's the problem. The happiness that the Spirit of God gives will blow the socks off of anything that we think of as happiness in this earthly life. One of the greatest tragedies of sin is it causes the soul to want happiness without admitting to the fact that it's spiritually destitute. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to miss all that. And the church, in a lot of ways, beloved, has bought that. The church has bought that in a lot of ways. You'll hear people say, well, the church should be a place of happiness and joy, and that's true, but not before it accepts the truth of what it means to be broken. Yes, of course we want happiness. We want to be joyful. Listen, the reason that we sing the songs and the reason that we go through what we go through is to rejoice over the fact, like David, that we've been rescued. I don't know about you, but to think about being rescued from the eternal damnation that we would all face to live in the blessedness of God's kingdom is worth being happy about, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of days now where I'm driving down the road and I'm like, I don't really like this right now, but thank the Lord I'm saved because one day this is all going to be behind us. You see, that brings a whole different view of what it really means to be happy. Too many Christians are saying, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. But it's a facade. Because if you watch the character of their lives and just watch their lives in general, you'll see that they're not reflecting a life of joy. And I'm not saying that we're going to have every single day of living this big smile on our face and we're going to just be hunky-dory about everything. Nobody, I mean, we all understand that. We're talking about the inner soul of the person that says, I'm contented no matter what happens. That's what Paul said, right? I've learned, no matter whatever state I'm in, to be what? To be content, to be happy, to be comforted, to be joyful. That's what he's talking about. He'd been through it all. I don't know if we can do this or not, Pasquale, but can you show the... I want to show you the brazen altar up here just for a minute. We've seen this many times before. This is, um, again, as I've joked before, this is when I was with Moses in the wilderness and took this picture... You can see my bus in the background back there. <laughs> Moses and the Hebrews were on this side. I was in the bus on the back side. This is actually in the Timnah Valley. I just want you to see this. In the front part here, there's the outer courtyard. That's where the people would come and make their sacrifices. Go to the next picture there, Pasquale. But here, this, this, uh, this altar here, that's the brazen altar that God told Moses to build first. And the reason that's significant, I just want you to see this, is because it was purposeful on God's mind that people would come to the place of death first. Before they would go back into the tabernacle, the priests would go back into the tabernacle and offer the sacrifice to God in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. 
But God's mind and his purpose was saying, you must, Hebrew, come to the place of death to yourself first. But all too often, what will happen is in church life, we'll say, I don't like that. That's uncomfortable to talk about. I want to hear about the joy of the Lord. Okay, so do I. But God says you don't get the joy of the Holy of Holies until you first die to yourself. In other words, you can't just run around the altar and pretend it doesn't exist and be all clean with the laver and eat the bread and understand the light of God's truth and go into the presence of the Spirit without first dying to yourself and to be mourning over sin. It is the first stop. It is the place of humility. It's the place of dying. Let's say it this way. There must be death before there can be life. Amen? The happiest people in the world are those who are ready to give their lives for Christ. Why? Because they've died to themselves. And they have the joy of God in them. That's why they do what they do. That's why the persecuted can live the way that they live. The church, beloved, doesn't need more events. We don't need lights and mirrors and fog and smoke. We don't need to conjure up things in order to make people happy. No, what we need is for the people, and even myself, to say, God, we are nothing without you. We must die and mourn over our sin. That's what the church needs. And then the church will be alive because the Spirit of God will be working in the midst of all that. If we want to see the joy of the Lord, beloved, we've got to start here. This is why Jesus was preaching this. In fact, Israel was chastened by the Lord because they didn't buy it. Isaiah 22, verse 12, Therefore in the day the Lord of God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing. In other words, God's saying, Listen, Israel, first of all, you need to be sorry over your sin. Number one, to shaving of the head and to wearing sackcloth. In other words, prove it, show it. Instead, verse 13, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. That's your heart, God's saying, but that's totally wrong. You've missed it. Die to yourself first. Listen, the validation or the verification of our sin is that we mourn over the sin of our life. If we really want to prove to ourselves that we are saved, and there are other ways, John covers this in 1 John throughout the Gospels, many ways to prove our salvation, but the validation is that we, number one, are mourning over our sin. If we're not at a place of mourning over our personal sin, there's a real problem. Salvation is not real. It is not real. To laugh at the world's jokes, listen carefully, to laugh at the world's jokes, to be entertained by the ungodliness of this world, whether it be through television or movies or friends or whatever it might be or whatever the immorality is out there, is to be a part of the wickedness of the world. That's not God's people. Even if we don't commit the sin ourselves, but we're just a part of enjoying the sinful tendencies of the world. You know what that does? That makes the church to the world look like a joke. Because we are proclaiming a message of being different, right? Our God is different from the world's gods. But when we look like the world and we sound like the world and we act like the world, then there's really no distinction between us and the world. And the world says, what is that? What is that? 
That's just a bunch of hypocrisy. So Jesus' point is, again, his people are distinct because they mourn over sin. They don't laugh at it. They don't make light of it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Good grief, that was crazy. No, what we should be saying is, Lord, forgive me for sinning against you. We're not going to stand in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, come on, you weren't really serious, were you? I mean, it was a joke. Was, I mean, yeah, I knew it was wrong, and I felt the conviction in my heart, but I knew, you'd just, I knew you were forgiving God, and everything would be all right. I mean, after all, you haven't done anything yet, right? I mean, everything's been pretty good. But see, that's why Jesus is starting the way he is. No, number one is you've got to mourn over your sin. Listen to how Paul put this again, Romans 7, talking about himself. And by the way, this was when Paul was at the height of his ministry. I find this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Listen to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself am serving my mind, and serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I see the battle, Paul says. I get it. I feel it. I see what I do on a daily basis. I, I understand. But what he saw was the sinfulness of his flesh very clearly. And notice who he focuses on. Go to chapter 8 of Romans. Therefore there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's just spoken about the great condemnation of sin in the prior chapters. He gets to chapter 8 and it's like the cresting of a hill or a mountain. And he says, but listen, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I see my sin. But praise God, he has delivered me. And there's no condemnation anymore. It's all been paid. It's done. And therefore I can live in joy and freedom. Go on to verse 6 and 7. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 12 and 13. Then brother, brethren, so then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You hear it? If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Very simple message. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Finally, in verse 22 and 23, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The message, listen, beloved, is very clear. The saints of God understood as they wrote this through the power of the Spirit that there must be death. There must be mourning over sin. Deep, deep, deep mourning over what sin has done. And it's not until that point that salvation will begin. Until we see that. Salvation comes to those who are spiritually bankrupt, number one, 
And number two, they mourn over their sin the rest of their lives. Listen, this is not just a one-time shot. This is a daily reminder of, Lord, how wicked I am in your presence, but praise be to your name that you forgave me and that you paid the debt of my sin. I rejoice in that. I rejoice in you, but I see the depths of my sin. Listen, beloved, the problem we get into is when we say that and then after a little while we become numb to it and we forget what God has done and we stop mourning over our sin and we just look forward to the joy instead of coming back to the place of death often. I have to believe as the Hebrews were looking at that tabernacle as a visual for them on a regular basis for over 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they would never forget after the beautiful time of the Um, Day of Atonement when all the sins would be forgiven that they couldn't forget that place of death at the altar. It was there. It was stuck. It was permanent in their traveling. They couldn't just pretend that it wasn't a part of life anymore. They had to remember the only reason that I have the joy of my forgiveness is because of that place right there where I gave the sacrifice to God. And that was the Old Testament and Christ now has become our sacrifice, right? And so we rejoice, but we cannot forget that time when we recognized our sin and we began to mourn over it. Now look as we close this out in verse 4, finishing this. Look at the result. Here's the result. First we've got to see the problem, and then we get the result. They shall be what? Comforted. They shall be comforted. When you acknowledge your sin, you will be comforted. And by the way, not others. Jesus is very clear here. Jesus says those who will be comforted are those who acknowledge their sin. Not intellectually alone, not emotionally alone, but together. The full spirit acknowledges. And notice who does the comforting. The word comfort here is a beautiful word. It's the same word in Greek or a translation of the word, a a part of the word or an inflection of the word of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who comforts us. So Jesus is saying, mourning over your sin will bring comfort to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the God of great comfort, 2 Corinthians, right? It is the Spirit of God who will begin to work in your heart. And don't be thrown off by the fact that he says, shall be. Notice it seems like it's past tense. It doesn't happen until then. It's talking as if that's going to be at some later date. In other words, what he's not saying is, if you will confess your sin right now, at some point in the history... You'll be comforted. That's not it. He's saying that you will be comforted at that moment. The comfort will come. And I can testify to that just in my own life. I can remember many times of confessing sin before the Lord and feeling the comfort of him. God gave me this one time years ago when I was a little boy with my dad. My cousin and I did something we shouldn't have done. And my dad, just gracious as he was, sat me on his lap in the darkness of the kitchen that night, and he made me sit there on his lap until I told him what we did. I can remember that to this day, and I was crying. I didn't want to tell him, and my heart was just about sick, and I wanted to throw up. I was probably 10 or 11. And dad just quietly, calmly kept saying to me, no, you need to tell me what happened. And when I told him, it was like, It was awesome. 
Because you know what the joy of it was? My dad didn't respond with, what? Which is the way we think God's going to respond, right? Because that's how we're taught in an earthly life. But he responded with, okay, now give me a hug. I love you. Don't do it again. Man, all that weight I was carrying around, it was gone. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, when you just confess and do what you know to do, mourn over your sin, you're going to be comforted. The Spirit of God will comfort your soul. And only a true believer can understand that because it's a different kind of comforting. Different kind of comforting. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I'm going to heap a bunch of junk on top of you that you're going to feel the weight of that and you're never going to climb up from the bottom of that pile. That's not what he said. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Does that sound familiar? And you will find rest for your souls. Listen, there's a lot of folks that are looking for rest, but they're looking in the wrong place. Your bank account's not going to do it. Your job's not going to do it. Your relationships are not going to do it. Your grandchildren are not going to do it. Only Christ will give you the rest that you need. It's got to start with Him. Jeremiah 31:25 says, For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. That's speaking for the Lord. John chapter 7, verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Anybody who's thirsty, you know what he's saying? Anybody who mourns over their sin, come to me, and I'll give you refreshment. So, beloved, listen, as you confess your sin day after day after day, he comforts you, doesn't he? He brings you great comfort. And what joy that brings. Listen, Romans 8, 1, again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that give you some comfort? Does that make you happy? I mean, think about it. There's no condemnation. So many times people will say to me, and I just had this conversation with a guy not long ago. He said, literally, he says, you don't understand, Pastor Bruce, what I've done in my life. And I said, no, you don't. you're right, I don't. But I don't need to know. And he said to me, he said, there is no way God will forgive me for what I've done. Well, that is a lie from hell. Satan does not want us to believe in the truth of what God has said to us. Listen, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, there is no condemnation. Now, you might be asking, how do I properly mourn over sin? Let me give you some of these things real quickly and we'll be done. Stop loving your sin, number one. Stop loving your sin. You've got to realize it's not the right street. Number two, don't live in despair. Again, some people think they're too bad to be saved. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, when you think you're too bad to be saved, you've just given yourself more power than God. You've just literally said, God, I'm God, you're not, because you can't forgive me, as if you have more power than he does. Thirdly, don't hide your sin. Don't hide it. You know, we say that around here a lot of times. That sin should never be under the table. Everything should be on the surface. Don't hide your sin. 
Fourthly, don't assume your sin is not that bad. We talked about that. Don't just assume, oh, well, you know, I'm not like that guy over there. My sin's not like other people's or other people. They're just, you're just fooling yourself. That's what the rich man's problem was. That's what the rich young ruler's problem was. They didn't think their sin was as bad. And then also, don't put it off. The quicker you deal with this, the better. Right? The quicker you deal with it, the better. Luke 12, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man is very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, God says to him, you fool. For this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? That's the reality, isn't it? That's the reality. A couple more positive things. Stay in the Word. That's one of the things that said, I could preach a whole message on these. Stay in the Word. A lot of people get lost because they stop staying in the Word. People will think, oh, I'm born again, and yeah, I love God's Word, but they really don't stay in the Word. That doesn't work. And then finally, ask God to show you your sin. You remember a few years ago, we preached a message on that, where we said at the end of it all, Lord, show me my flesh. That's a good thing for us to do regularly. Lord, show me the wickedness of my flesh. Help me to see it. So if you're sensitive to him, do you laugh at sin? Do you make light of it? Or are you sick over it? That's the issue. To be born again means you're humbled by it, you mourn over it like the psalmist. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Lamentations 1.16, For these things I weep, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. Friday night, Debbie got a call that her dad was taken to the hospital and he's not doing well. In fact, that's why she's not with us today. We rushed down there Friday night about 10.30. Finally got in bed about 2.30. His heart is down to about 15% working. And uh, so the doctors were just very honest and, um, and told us what was happening. And it's been kind of a history of building here over the last few years. But as I sat and I looked at my father-in-law in the bed, I couldn't help but think about how critical it is to make sure that we have trusted Christ as our Savior. I'll be honest, my father-in-law has not been the greatest man in the world. In fact, there's been a lot of issues over the years. been a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, especially among the children. And so it's been something we've had to work through for a long time. Uh, And so I was thinking about you as I was sitting there, and I was thinking about this message. And I was thinking about how true Jesus' words are, that each of us at some point in our lives are going to be in that position. That doesn't mean we're going to be in a hospital bed. Some of us may be taken out in the blink of an eye, right? But the reality exists, whether you're young or old, there's going to come a time where we're going to face our mortality. The question will become at that moment, is that what have I done with the sin in my life? Have I hidden it? Have I pretended it wasn't there? 
Have I tried to mask it by religion? Or have I truly confessed it before the Lord? And my character present itself in that way. Because everybody's going to know, won't they? Everybody's going to know. In my wife's family, unfortunately, and I'm not saying anything that is not pretty much open in public, anybody that knows, is that there has not been a reflecting of the character of godliness. And that's been very hurtful over the years. It's caused a lot of problems. Not between us, but within the family itself. And so, again, my father-in-law becomes an example of a man who I pray that his life is, that his soul is saved, but the character that he has reflected to his children has not been one that would reflect genuine salvation. And that saddens me. It saddens me for each of you who may be in that same position. And I don't know who you are. But the bottom line would be that there comes a point in time where we have to do some business with God. And we have to ask some important questions. Like, what is the character of my heart? You get the point? I've tried to say the same thing a bunch of times, and I know you're going, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. Okay, you know how we get it? You know when we know we got it? When we start living it. That's when we know we got it. And I understand, listen, I understand that many people walk out of a message and they just go, yeah, I got it. But they don't got it. They don't have it. Because the character of their life doesn't reflect it. I'm not talking about perfection. You know that. You're smart enough to know that. I'm talking about the soul that knows it's been changed. Cannot help but proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. Can't help it. Just can't help it. Otherwise, it will proclaim the one who has kept you in darkness, which will be Satan himself. So as we close in prayer, let me offer up this to us and to you simply as a prayer of um, thankfulness. That's what time of year we're at. Um, A prayer of serious introspection as we each look into our own hearts. I pray that in this prayer tonight or to this morning that you're going to be able to just push away the people that are sitting beside you, not literally, please don't hurt somebody. (laughs) And you'll be able to just imagine yourself in a room with Jesus all by yourself. And I don't know how to say it any more clearly than this, but when you're in a room with Jesus all by yourself, there's just not going to be anything you're going to hide. So you might as well be honest. Because guess what? He's in the room. He's in the room. How do I know that? Because he is Lord. And he inhabits the praises of his people. So let's pray together and we'll end our service this way as we do business with the Lord. Lord, first of all, as always, we want to thank you for your great goodness to us. Oh, what a kind God you are. What a gentle, loving Father you are. But Lord, your word is so clear and so obvious to us that as if we're listening, we'll understand that you are a God who does not laugh over sin. You don't rejoice over sin. There's nothing good about it to you. 
But what you've done is you've come to this earth to expose to us the wickedness of our hearts so that we will be happy. So we'll be contented. We'll be at rest, at peace with you. And so, Lord, I pray that even though we've been long this morning, that um, whichever heart, whomever, whoever's heart is hearing this this morning, that you will have somehow touched and that they will acknowledge their spiritual poverty and acknowledge that there is sin there that must be mourned over. Lord, it's always been our purpose and our plan to deliver your word as clearly as we know how and to edify and to build up, but also to acknowledge and to worship you. So Lord, in a way that only you can, our prayer every week is that you would touch hearts, that souls may be rescued and that that they would live a life of joy and peace. So Father, I pray that in this quietness for just a moment here that each person will either rejoice over their salvation or they'll seriously do business with you as they look into your face and know that you see all things and are willing to forgive all things and to make all things right. Thank you, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, Lord, woe to those who are not. So, again, Lord, as always, we ask that you would do your work and that you'd be pleased to make your name great. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.